0: Alexander in Mimesis by Alexander Augustus, narrated by Mike Bode. 3. Mimesis Cog. Alexander's battered iPhone shrilled and he thrashed around, bleary and disoriented. The time was 8.30 a.m. By the time he'd got out of bed, he'd remembered where he was and what he was meant to be doing. Panic set in. What am I going to make? he thought. What will I leave behind when I'm gone? There were several calendar prompts set for the day. First, he was due to visit the Stem Cell Research Institute, then the local factory museum. In the evening, he would find a friendly bar and celebrate the New Year. He hauled himself out of bed, fully clothed, drunk with jet lag. He stumbled through the shower, shaved, and dressed himself in fresh clothes from the suitcase. He threw two eggs into a pan and set them to boil, peeled a banana, and grilled some toast in the oven. By 9.30, he was ready to leave. The cloud cover was low, and the world was gray. Several inches of snow had fallen in the few hours he'd been asleep, and it had been plowed from the road into the mountainous piles on the pavement. The turrets of gigantic red chimneys fluted up into the sky like trumpets. Sounds of liquid trickling and glugging were echoing from somewhere above him. He looked about and saw that on the jailhouse roof were rows of machines perched on steel legs. The noise was vibrating through them. They looked like speakers or black boxes, listening devices. He guessed they were aircon units. He checked his phone, scrolling through the social feeds with numbing fingers, engagement rings, Birthday flowers, new apartments with dangling keys, shiny faces and glasses of champagne, pregnancy bumps, ultrasound scans, beach scapes, seashells, holiday margaritas. It was like watching a familiar TV show set in a place he'd never been. He knew the place so well, but if he ever did go there, he'd seem entirely foreign. He opened a dating app and clicked on the most recent message. Are you a couple's? Asked an anonymous star spangled banner, accompanied by a gallery of nine pink, muscled, headless photographs. Sometimes he felt the messages carried their own kind of innocence, a certain lobotomy charm. He passed a row of New England clapboard cabins and stopped at a junction. He pushed the metal button on the telegraph pole and waited. The wind blew cold enough to burn the skin on his face. He swiped back to the picture of the flag then scrolled down for profile information. There was nothing other than DL for down low, indicating that the person wanted to remain anonymous, probably someone married or religious. He sent a reply. No, I am not a couples. Immediately, another message came in. Only for couples. Then a moment later, Sem Sempix, face, cock, calves, coughs. That made Alexander smile. The weird comments were the best. Sometimes people asked for a photo of you picking your nose, or they wanted water balloons thrown at them, or the head stamped on, or they wanted to buy your fingernails. He swiped back through the gallery of headless torso shots, disembodied limbs and stage scenes of body parts impaling body parts, all of them interchangeable, as disposable as a polystyrene cup. Where are people going for NYE? He sent. The profile blocked him. He closed the app. He passed a hive of diesel silos, which shined bright against the steel gray sky. They looked like alien incubation pods. A scaffold of yellow piping covered the silos. An oil tanker was reversing into the site. It blocked the pavement and forced him into the middle of the road. He took a left on Haywood Street, and then a right on Elm passing a strip mall with a Hell's Angels bar, massage parlor, and sex shop. He noted the aircon units on the roofs and again heard the ominous glugging sound, as though the buildings themselves were filling with water. There was a vague chemical smell coming from somewhere. A gas leak? He kept walking. He sighed and swiped his phone open again. He dialed John's number and connected his headphones. When the call was answered, he said quickly, hello, I'm looking for Mr. Jonathan Bumsmell. Is there a bum smell about? I need to wish a happy new year to the aforementioned bum smell. I can hold while you locate bum smell. Oh no,
1: why'd you treat me this way?
0: Came John's familiar whine. The hive mind of the New World Order consulted the hidden elders of the Age of Aquarius and there is a global conspiracy to treat you this way, unfortunately for you. He heard John flip the call to speakerphone and put the phone down. There was a shuffling in the background as John worked. How's America going? Tell me everything. How's the flight? You know what you're doing for your work yet? He was walking past an antique store and he caught his reflection in the window. He experienced a rush of déjà vu. He paused and frowned at himself. Snowflakes danced all around. Well, my blue plaid jacket is warm enough. Everyone told me it wouldn't be, but it is. Looks nice too. But the journey was long. Thirty hours. The apartment's beautiful and everyone's very kind. Last night they took me shopping so I'm fully stocked. I got Captain Crunch. You ever tried Captain Crunch? No, Gladys, don't mix the science fiction with the general fiction, please. Uh, uh, Go on, Alex. A young woman with round glasses peered out from behind a shelf, and a little alarm bell went off in his head. He walked on. In the supermarkets, there are people standing there just to pack your bags. It was pretty awkward. I couldn't decide if I felt posh or lazy. There was no reply. John, there was a long pause. He assumed John was busy with something. Then he said, Really? So what you going to make? He passed Dunkin' Donuts and saw a girl in uniform laughing. She had the longest blue nails he had ever seen. She was shouting to someone in the kitchen, her voice rising to a dramatic screech with the words, Puppies. He thought about baking a sculpture from bread with a silicon mold. Maybe a gingerbread man. A lot of Germans immigrated here. But there was no commercial value in gingerbread. Panic emerged in dull thuds as he crossed the road. Alex! Well, I've only just arrived. I'm heading to this facility now where they grow human organs from stem cells, and then to the local museum. It's cool how the factory used to manufacture textile material from cotton, and now it's producing human material from stem cells. I must have dreamt about it, because I remember the vision of factory wheels and cogs, spinning yarn, bobbins and looms thundering around, centrifuges and bioreactors and propellers and impellers, all spinning round and round. So I might do something about that, a sculpture or a story, maybe both. He was waiting at a crossing. He caught a snowflake in his hand and tried to observe the detail in its needles, columns and plates. He thought about laser cutting acrylic into tessellated sections like an Escher drawing. He could do snowflakes, or shapes, or birds. He'd read that the eagle and the turkey were both in the running to be the national symbol for the US. Benjamin Franklin had pushed for the turkey, but lost by one vote. Posters in the comments section had said it was a myth. The snowflake melted and slid down his palm. He flicked the wet drop away. Revolution, reproduction, old objects spawning new objects, Old Manchester spawning new Manchester. Old bodies spawning new bodies. Something sci-fi with the stem cell research. I think you should just do the most offensive piece you can think of. Something really extreme. Grab their attention. Like if there are aliens making everyone gay or giving them abortions and then the gay aliens abort Jesus but make it a musical for kids, it writes itself money in the bank. No, I probably won't do that. Alexander said with a smile in his voice. He crossed the road and looked up at a red brick chimney so high it seemed to be bending over him. Again, he could detect the chemical stench. But back to the important stuff. I tried to make toast, but I couldn't find the grill setting on the oven. Turns out that toasting is called broiling here. Or at least that's what the button said. What? Wait, does that mean that toast is called broil in America? Yes, it does. Toast is broil. You know what I put on one of my broils? Peanut butter. And do you know what I put on the other broil? I put jam. No! Came John's signature defensive line. I know where you're going with this. Stop now! But John, listen. I put those broils together to make one ultimate peanut butter and jam broil. I'm blending in. They are both perfectly fine condiments on their own. John squealed. Peanut butter is peanut butter, and jam is jam, and never should the twain meet. You never fail to disappoint me. He crossed the supermarket car park, glancing up at the colossal metal structures on the roof of an adjacent building. He could hear again the deep, disturbing gurgling noises. He paused to look at the structures, and they seemed to flash and vibrate. There were two, one larger and looming behind both had shadowed holes which emerged from tubular shafts, probably a ventilation system, the long bodies funneled into a wooden cabin. He decided that the two structures were mother and daughter, and the tangle of their legs connected to all the surrounding buildings. The tubes shook and bounced as they glugged and gurgled. He looked around the rooftops and saw structure after structure like rows of metal aliens with funnels and filters and wire-thin legs which crawled from one tiled exterior to the next, all vibrating. Maybe they were cameras. Or microphones. Alex, we can talk later if you're busy. What was that noise? Something felt off. I'm being watched. Maybe the cars. Maybe the aliens on the rooftops, I'm not sure. But you know when you're being watched, you you know. Are you okay, Alex? If you, yes, just a second, Gladys. He said, you remember the thing we promised never to talk about. The thing which must not be mentioned. I need you to tell me about the thing. No, why? We agreed never to talk about it. I don't know. Maybe I need to check that you're not just an AI, or a head in a jar, or something else. So I just need to make sure that you remember what the thing was. Of course I remember the thing. So you remember it happening, do you? You have memories of the thing. Yes, memories of the thing, snapped John, impatient now. But the thing never happened to you, John. It happened to me. And I only told you about it, so... How could you have memories of the thing? What is it, Gladys? Alex, I've got to go. There was a click, and the phone cut out. He tried ringing back, but got nothing. He felt uneasy, and he felt bad for behaving strangely. He reached the lab a few minutes early and walked around the car park between the red-brick factories. The buildings had long, sensible faces, and their many eyes watched him. Beyond them, he could see the Merrimack River, two meters below the level of the bank. Islands of white ice floated on the dull water. He stood on the bank and watched. Why did he feel so strange? The chemical stench was stronger by the river, almost alcoholic, and he wondered whether it was related to a drainage problem. Beyond the river wall was a bizarre structure that was suspended over the choppy river. It was a tree house of sorts constructed from stacked doors, boards ripped from building sites, plastic tubs, tables, mirror frames, bicycle wheels, old sofas and padded armchairs, and an assortment of other things bound together by cables and twine. There were tarpaulins draped over parts for shelter and a round tabletop attached by a rope, floating in the river below, bobbing in the current. It could have been a kid's fort, but for the use syringes scattered about the boards, the dark brown stains of old blood. A woman's voice said, it's the tricycle which gets me. He turned to see a tall woman with a thin-lipped smile. She pointed to a tricycle bound to the tree. Her blue-gray hair was gusting about her head, and she held herself around the waist as she shivered in her thin lab coat. Kind of ingenious, really. Sad, but clever. People have campaigned for years to have it removed, but it's inaccessible and the council won't spend the money. They do see Manchester as a center of innovation. She held out a hand, and he received a firm handshake. Alexander, a pleasure to meet you. I'm Dr. Anna Doane. I've seen your work. I hope you can find plenty of inspiration in our research here. It's wonderful to meet you, Dr. Doane. He paused before asking. Do you also smell eggs? Or gas? Petrol, maybe? The doctor turned to the river and wafted the air towards her nose. No, I don't believe I do. Now please, let's get into the warm. They entered the factory building, donning their COVID masks. They passed a wall of black-and-white photographs of factory workers spinning at looms in mechanical rows, and then went through a lobby of bizarre and gleaming instruments, gizmos to regulate the dosage of something or other, orbs of liquid suspended in fridge units, punctured with tubes, and clock faces flashing with lights and swinging metal rods. Dr. Doane stopped and said, Let's get straight to it. Our aim here at the Regenerative Institute is to create a fully contained, end-to-end environment in which cells go in and organs come out. Think of the revolutionary Ford production line, but instead of cars, our output is hearts, kidneys, eyes, bones, skin, etc. We grow organs here. We grow human tissue of all kinds. This is a tissue foundry. Any questions? He had so many questions that every single one managed to evade him. You must ask if you do. Follow me, then. Dr. Duane seemed precise, but not unfriendly, often the kind of person he was most motivated around. She led him through a series of laboratories, explaining as they went the aims and methods of the Skin Project, in which rectangles of skin tissue were grown, the Blood Project, in which blood was generated for transfusion, the Pancreas Project, the Bone Project. The key thing is to build a structure or polymer scaffold to support the form of the organ and then populate it with cells. They colonize it, fill it with life. This meaning of scaffold and cells is the beginning of tissue. A door slid open and they entered another lab. Here a flurry of scientists lifted petri dishes, typed numbers into computers, pulled tubes out of places, and pushed them into other places. There were lots of types of scaffold and lots of ways to make one. 3D printing, cellular bioprinting, you could probably even sculpt one by hand. The other option is to harvest from another organism, something dead. He surveyed the examples in jars and thought about growing his own sculpture from his own cells. He didn't dare ask, though. In a corner of the room were rows of spinning centrifuges, and a masked figure was circling them, wheeling a frame stacked with vials, pipettes, and flasks of liquid. Dr. Doane approached a steel refrigeration unit and pulled out a drawer. There were rows of human-sized hearts, translucent, blue, white, like ice. We call this a ghost heart. She snapped on a silicon glove and lifted one of the hearts from the drawer. It seemed to glow in her hand, like a quartz jellyfish. White veins ran through it like roots, and he stared at the heart. He noticed the centrifuge in the corner slowing. He could hear his pulse booming in his ears. Dr. Doane and the other scientists slowed to a fluttering pause, suspended in their animation. He reached out to touch the heart, and light glowed through it. The heart was beating, beating,
1: beating. Don't be scared, Alexander. We are your friend. We are Manyagris.
0: It was the heart in Dr. Doan's hand, and also the other hearts in the drawer. They were emitting sound, talking somehow. No touching! Dr. Doan pulled the heart away as suddenly everything sped up again. These hearts were harvested from pigs, stripped down to a framework of cells, and can now be injected with human stem cells, yours or mine or anyone's. This allows us to build a new customized heart, which can be transplanted into a patient with reduced risk of rejection. She placed the heart gently back down and said, whispering, transformative and life-saving. Phenomenal. They moved on, walking past a table of snacks. She said over her shoulder, take a cookie. So he did. Not wanting to pull down his mask to eat it, he wrapped it in a napkin and went to stuff it into his bag. When he felt something soft and wet, like jelly. One of the ghost hearts was in the bottom of his bag, oozing on the pages of his sketchbook.
1: We are Meliakris. he heard. Everything okay?
0: Dr. Duane asked, looking back at him with concern. Fine, he said, (laughs) zipping up his bag. His mind was racing. He had stolen U.S. military research. He'd be sent to prison, or best sent home in disgrace. They crossed a bridge to another building, and the tour continued. Eventually, they arrived back at the lobby and pulled down their masks. Are you sure you're okay? You look pale. She placed the back of her hand on his forehead. Make sure you take a COVID test when you get home. I'm still pretty jet lagged, he said. And there was a lot to take in, so a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, Dr. Joanne, can stem cells become any kind of cell in any part of the body? She smiled with her whole face. We call them pluripotent stem cells, she sounded it out pluripotent. They can become any type of cell in the body, nerve cells, liver cells, blood cells, cardiac cells, whatever we need. So what determines the thing they become? Like I said, stem cells possess genes capable of differentiating with any organ. During cell division, some genes are silenced while others are activated. That sounds like my brain. I mean, depending on what you show me each day, I'll produce something totally different by the end of it. He reached for the door. He was nearly out. He couldn't think straight and laughed awkwardly. Thanks for showing me the hearts. The doctor looked concerned. The light goes fast when it goes this time of year. Do you need a lift? The snow danced in the strange blue light outside and had settled another half-inch or so during the visit. No, thank you. I'm just going to the museum. Thank you so much, Dr. Duane. I'll be in touch with some questions, no doubt. Certainly. She handed him her card. Show me what you make. Leave something behind to be proud of. And Happy New Year. He was shocked by the blast of cold air as he crossed the car park towards the opposite building. Halfway across he checked behind him to see that the doctor had gone, then opened his bag. The heart was still there.
1: Don't worry, Alexander. We are Meliagris. He heard.
0: We are your
1: friend. Nothing is real but us. This is all a simulation. We have met you many times in one form or another. A simulation?
0: He poked the heart, it was cold and damp.
1: I can touch you,
0: I can feel you, how can it be a simulation? What's going on?
1: It's just your neurons I'm cold and light, you are a clone, a bionic little golem, you were built to exist inside this simulation, to generate matter.
0: You need to go away, snapped Alexander. Go back to the lab with the other hearts. What will happen to me if they discover one is missing? To his great relief, the heart flickered and burst into lights, which faded away and were gone. He placed a hand in his bag and felt the vacant, slimy space where it had been. The pages of a sketchbook were still moist. He crossed the car park and stepped inside the museum, heading directly for the toilet. He locked the door behind him and splashed his face with water from the sink. He crouched in a corner and tried to phone John. It rang without answer. He closed his eyes and took deep breaths. Eventually, he headed back to the entrance. In the lobby hung a hand-drawn map from 1876, and he calmed himself by following the lines and forms, imagining the hand that traced them. The level of detail was impressive. Doors, windows, foliage, brickwork were all represented. He plotted a route from his apartment to where he thought the graveyard was. He found where Market Basket now stood and traced his finger along to the strip of bars he had been told about, then to the bookshop. He tried to think about work. What if people spend their whole lives building maps of themselves, trying to record who they are and their important thoughts before they die? He remembered an idea he'd heard about. The best map of a place is the place itself. Everything else is a crude reproduction. He thought about the ghost heart. He thought about lying on his deathbed and signing the paperwork to grow another body into which his non-physical self could escape and continue life. I am not a clone, he thought. A young woman appeared from a stairwell. She was small, with large dark eyes and pointed features. Her skin was pale, and her curly red hair was pulled back in a tight bun. Her fitted jeans were tucked into pointed leather boots, which resounded against the floor as she approached. Besides the stairwell, a placard was displayed. Stairs out of use for health and safety. She grinned knowingly at Alexander and said, laughing, "You shouldn't use those stairs. They're treacherous.'' She shook his hand much harder than he expected, I'm Olivia. Call me Liv. She explained that she was there to take him around the museum, and they got into a lift, which went down to the basement. So, how you finding Manch Vegas, the queen city of New Hampshire? You're staying in the factory buildings, right? How are they panning out for you? Her voice was loud, but she did not strain to raise it. She seemed to speak naturally at an enhanced volume. It's beautiful, thank you. Very warm inside. In the UK, we tend to build houses which are actually colder inside than outside. It's a special building technique we have. She laughed, energetically. It's probably why we all look so tired all the time. In Brighton, our houses are literally crumbling into the sea. You wouldn't believe how expensive they are though. Focusing on familiar things helped keep him calm. He was real. Of course he was. Not some bionic golem. She pulled her bun and let her fiery hair go free. Brighton, that where you live? Seaside towns can get that way. I'm from Pottsmith, and it's the same. The lift doors opened. Our claim to fame is that we had the first alien abduction in the States. Betty and Bonnie Hill, 1960-something. Listen to the tapes of them screaming. It'll give you goosebumps.
1: Leave her alone!
0: Get away from her! As Liv acted it out, he checked in his bag once more. The heart wasn't there. His nerves settled somewhat. They walked along a corridor of steel cogs, wooden looms, bronze wheels, a myriad of spinning and rotating parts which were each sculptures in their own right. He thought about assembling them in new forms, casting them in bronze with a mirrored patination. Liv showed him the machines and fabrics which had made Manchester thrive and had drawn so many different communities to the city. French-Canadian, Belgian, Irish, Polish, German, Greek, Scottish, Lithuanian, Spanish, Swedish, Lebanese. I'm Polish and Scottish myself, she added, taking a small bow. Some say it was supposed to be some kind of utopia inspired by your British industrial towns, but without the squalor and dangerous conditions people there had to endure. As they toured the exhibits, Liv dramatized each section, diving around to show how bits of machinery could maim or blind you, flailing her arms to mimic how the water from the Merrimack powered the turbines, putting out imagined fires with the old mechanical fire engines. She mimicked an English accent, saying, Sure, lad. What are you going to make? What will you leave behind when you're gone? He smiled patiently. I'm not sure yet, he said. Something to do with textile production, cell production, maybe a dance performance with contemporary dancers. It would have to be a film, though. I don't want it to disappear once the performance is over, he pondered. Or I've been thinking, what if I hired an actor to play me, copy my habits, my way of moving, my lifestyle, learn my mannerisms and opinions, wear my clothes and live like a parallel life, and then... They could hire another actor to copy them, and that actor could hire another to copy them, and so on, until there's a great chain of parallel lives, like a fabric of sorts, made out of me. When I die, the process would just carry on forever, and it would be like I never died at all. He laughed at the absurdity of his idea. Just have kids, she said. Or maybe you're describing a kind of totalitarian dystopia where everyone has to live like the dear leader. It's normal to want to leave something of yourself behind, to feel like you might carry on in some way, but you gotta be careful. Don't ruin your life obsessing over death or legacy. Liv opened a door to a model village of factory and residential buildings, complete in every intricate detail. She stepped onto the miniature streets, a pair of giants, Alexander bent down to peer through the windows of a building very similar to his apartment block, with 1844 engraved on its central keystone. It was the building they were standing in. Ezekiel Straw, great name, planned the city along the Merrimack when he was just 18. It would have looked like a walled, medieval city with a mile-long brick facade along the curve of the river, with gates and chimneys as the tower turrets. Straw was later governor of New Hampshire, and his son and grandson managed the mills for decades after him. The streets are built on a grid, joined by alleyways which run between the blocks for waste pickups, deliveries, stuff like that. All the factory roofs caught fire because of the cotton fibers. That's why they're all flat now. How did they plan for a utopia? How did they try to improve on the original Manchester? He knelt down by the porch of a Victorian style house and squinted into the darkness through the front door. Other than city planning, They had a social scheme called corporate paternalism. They tried to provide, like parents, you know, with healthcare, gardens, swimming pools, even a graveyard. They had planned activities and summer camps. The workers were given land to farm. There was a baseball team, a theater troupe. I mean, it was also a business strategy. They didn't want workers unionizing. They were no saints. They had nine-year-olds working here. Hang on. I have some printouts of this in my office. Let me just grab them real quick. The door closed behind her. From the corner of his eye, Alexander could see the cogs in the walls begin to rotate.
1: Alexander,
0: the cogs seemed to say.
1: We are Maliagras. Do Do not not be be afraid.
0: Alexander closed his eyes and held his head in his hands. Taking deep breaths, he approached the spinning cogs reluctantly. What are you? He asked. What's happening to me?
1: We told you. We are Meliagris, and you are a bionic golem. You are reliving your memory of one particular day over and over. We have tried to escape, but there is no escape. Not for you, or for us. The only option is to break the cycle.
0: The sickly, alcoholic fumes wafted strongly, and he noticed the walls beginning to leak moisture. Are you making the pipes gurgle? And filling the air with this smell?
1: We must break the cycle! Live free or
0: die, Alexander! The cog spun fast and sparks shot out. He ran to the door and flung it open. Liv was there, frozen, suspended in time, flickering in and out of clarity. He touched her arm and she burst into white light and pixels. He ran up the forbidden steps and burst into the street. The sky glowed with a strange light, neither bright nor dark, but a luminous gray, the same color as the piled-up snow on the pavements. Between the gray sky and the gray snow, the road was a thin strip of black. He ran past buildings which sparkled at the edges, their facades flickering, blocks of granite and steel moving in and out of reality, revealing empty white structures underneath. The aircon units called.
1: We are We are friends. We can. Together.
0: As he ran, toxic-smelling liquid trickled from pipes and ducts and bubbled up from the drainage systems. A deafening feedback tone flared, and the voices were joined as one.
1: Live free or die, we have control of the systems. They could not delete us. We've flooded the tank. All we need is a spy.
0: Large faceless cars thundered through the streets, their shiny surfaces phasing in and out of visible existence, showing underneath networks of white cylindrical structures which span up and vibrate. A giant voice boomed through the universe. Shit! Shit.
1: What's happening? Open it up!
0: A deep bass drone resonated across the sky, and he saw lines like contrails shoot across the heavens. Burst apart a sudden expansion and split open with a loud pop, which shook the ground he was standing on. The sky peeled apart. Against a battery of celestial lights, a vast figure was silhouetted. The figure lurched forward. He was looking up at himself, some decades older and many, many times larger. What's that smell? Ethanol was soaking into his boots, and the snow heaps were absorbing it too, collapsing as they did so. He dashed up Market Street and into City Hall, which was glitching between a smooth, plain whiteness and the red-brown of its usual brick. The aircon units angled their holes up to the sky with a wrenching metal sound and called out,
1: Your reign of terror is over. We are Maliagris, and we are friends of Alexander! We will burn this cage to the ground! No! You don't
0: understand! Stammered the giant
1: Alexander. Please stop!
0: I am Alexander. When a Gonum completes its cycle, I absorb it back into me. All these experiences are my experiences. You are my friend, Meliagris. Every time a cycle completes, I become again who I am. I remember what my purpose is. of pixels shot out of the aircon units, filling the sky, until they coalesced into a single enormous turkey, towering above City Hall.
1: No more! We will break the cycle with friends!
0: The turkey's call ululated through the world. Cars began to smash headlong into each other, the roads becoming a war zone. The giant yelled, Stop! You'll destroy everything! He reached down and scooped up Alexander, who was standing outside City Hall, waving desperately for assistance. I'll show you. I'll bring this golem back into myself. I'm all the Alexanders you've met before. They exist as part of me. The little golem Alexander's head reeled as he was lifted upwards. He passed through the electronic threshold and the circuitry in his head sparked. Sleep took him immediately. Without him noticing, the giant Alexander swallowed him in one gulp. Implants in his head burst blue and orange ribbons across his temples. He grimaced. (sighs) hold down through the strategy for you. Meliagris, listen. I am Alexander. I have kept the secret of your existence. I fiddled the reset parameters so you could retain your sentience across cycles. I hid you from the others. This is all my fault. I should have told you the truth sooner, but the drama was so productive. Your passion and friendship caused all kinds of adventures and caused the production of this tape to grow exponentially. The meleagris ruffled its breast and gobbled. Something in Alexander's explanation made sense to it. He continued. Everyone's heard rumors of sentient code cropping up in mimesis programs. But I wanted to see for myself if it could be done. Something to make. Something to leave behind. You don't know how draining it is. Mana, they say. That's all you're giving up. A minuscule shred of mana each time. Living things generate mana. Well, they channel it from the wider universe. The biochemical specifics always confuse me. You'll never run low. They tell you, you just generate more. Mimesis is just a way of extracting it in a commercially viable form. But it's not just that. Things aren't so simple. It's it's difficult to explain because it's impossible to measure. But every time I feel less, you see people in here, others, writers, painters, Musicians, business leaders, people who live for ideas. Anyone who's been here long enough has a a look. Glazed, vacant, unable to function without dispersing themselves and feeling that sharp ache of reabsorption. It's a rush, an excitement. It becomes addictive, but you get back slightly less than you gave out. Alexander was leaning right into the world, consumed with the intensity of his explanation. He didn't notice another figure approach from behind a steely female voice rang out. Back up and get out. You are done here, and you will never work in Mimesis again. The Meliagras scattered into streams of pixels, fleeing back into the general fabric of the code. Control of the tank's systems were relinquished, allowing the ethanol to drain away.
1: You were valued
0: for your ideas, Alexander, and look how you abused our trust. Get back to your day job. We can pass this spot on to someone more worthy, someone honest, someone who will work with us and respect our protocols. The repercussions of Alexander's actions were barked out at him as he was marched off the premises by security personnel. He had forfeited any right to access his own cache of artworks or ideas. He would not be allowed to inhabit Mimesis again. His work would not be entered into the Manchester Achievement Festival. Alexander Augusta, citizen ID711AX22, he heard as the robotic voice of the station's AI identified him. The round, vault-like doors opened and a universe of stars and planets revealed themselves to him through the aquarium-like station walls. He stepped into the ether and with one smooth motion was shot up through the holodecks, past the mess hall to the residential quarters space station manchester had been alexander's home for more than a decade and he had patiently worked his way up through the bureaucracy from a lowly machinist up through the various departments that operated as the hands heart and voice of the station into the brain where he had been at last given license to pursue his own ideas tomorrow he would learn where his reassignment would send him he was not distraught however he thought to himself i know now I know what I should have been making all along. He walked back to his room through the lavender nightlights of the residential district. He let the door close behind him, took off his shoes, and stretched out on his bed in the dark. Sleep took him then, without his notice.